The text this morning is from Genesis 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through 6. Here God tells us about the fall into sin. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, have you ever been disappointed in someone whom you held in high regard for a long time and who did something unthinkable? You never imagined that this person would do such a thing. He or she got caught in some secret sin and afterwards turned his or her back on the church and family and everything she had or he had ever stood for. This happens also in the church to elders or ministers or professors of theology and their wives. At one time they were held in high esteem and were fruitful in their ministry and then they turned their back on it all. I know of at least half a dozen cases in the last 10 years or so where this happened. Also happens in our families, with husband and father, or wife and mother does something unimaginable. We find out that it was not a one-time occurrence, but that she or he led a double life. He or she was caught in adultery or addicted to pornography for a long time or drugs or alcohol or visited prostitutes or he was caught with his hands in the till and defrauded others. Nobody knew. It was a secret for a long time. Unexpectedly, it's out in the open. It's deeply disappointing and upsetting. At times like that, we throw up our hands and we cry out to God because of the hurt and the anger and the mixed emotions. How is it possible? What made this person do these things? 
How could we have been so wrong about him or her? We wonder what makes certain people do what they do. Why are they willing to destroy their ministry, the lives of their families, their reputation in the church, and turn their backs on it all? What is it that lures them to destruction? Brothers and sisters, it's a question that every one of us has to face. When something like this happens, we are forced to look at ourselves and ask, could I do something like that? Or my husband, or my wife, or one of my children, or my minister? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, God says that you and I could be tempted to commit the same horrible sins as others. That's quite an indictment. Is that really true? To answer that question, we have to look at how the tempter does his work. How does Satan tempt man to sin? That's also our theme. How Satan tempts man to sin against God. We look at three things. The temptation. Secondly, the deception. And then finally, the response. The text introduces us to one of God's creatures, the serpent. As one of God's creatures, he is good. At this point, sin had not yet entered the world. And so, as such, the serpent was not an evil creature. He did not have any wicked qualities either. The fact that he is called crafty, or shrewd, or cunning, as other translations have it, does not mean that he is devious in the evil sense. No, the word translated as crafty refers to quickness of sight, to swiftness of motions, and to the ability to adapt to every situation. God endowed the serpent to be flexible and innovative. In fact, he was a delightful creature. But those exceptional qualities of the serpent could be used by a superior intelligence for his own purposes. And you see, that's where Satan comes in. He uses the serpent to advance his own evil agenda and speaks and acts through him. You know, that's always the way Satan works, isn't it? He uses something that is beautiful in creation and delightful, and he uses that as bait to draw us away from God. That's what he did with the serpent. And now let's see how he goes to work on Eve. But first, let us keep in mind that Eve was also one of God's good creatures. Very good. He created her without sin. At this point, she does not have poisoned blood in her veins like we who were born and conceived in sin do. There is nothing in creation that troubles Eve. She has had the perfect 
start in life. There is nothing lacking in her life, and there is nothing there to spoil her happiness. And so, for example, she doesn't even know what it is to be lonely or in despair or to experience rejection or famine or disease or hunger. There is no temptation for her to cheat on her husband, even. She has the perfect husband. And she lives in a beautiful garden. She has everything going for her. It's not the way it is for us. When we sin, we can point to the poor example of others, or to the way we were brought up, or we can blame our miserable circumstances. Not Eve. She lives in a pristine environment. When Jesus Christ was tempted in the wilderness, that was different for him. He was tempted in a hostile environment. His life was in constant danger. The world was out to destroy him. He suffered physically. He was hungry. And so the temptation for Jesus to sin was much greater. But now Satan comes to Eve and Adam in that unspoiled state. How now does he tempt the woman? Well, he uses the same methods that he still uses. His MO, his modus operandus, has never changed. And so let's pay careful attention to how he goes about his dirty business. For if he can tempt her, he can certainly tempt you and me. In the first place, he disguises himself. He uses one of God's delightful creatures to do that, as we saw. He does not warn you of his presence, rattling with his tail like a rattlesnake or hissing like a coiled snake ready to strike. He doesn't come with the roar of a lion either. And there is nothing to suggest that there is danger ahead. He just slides into your life like a trusted companion. He comes, as it says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, like an angel of light. And he goes to the woman rather than the man. Why? Well, he knows that the command not to eat of the forbidden tree was given to Adam. That was given to him even before Eve was created. God also gave him the task to defend and to guard the garden. For he had to work it and to keep it. He did not give that command to Eve. Oh sure, Eve was Adam's helper and together they had to carry out God's plan for creation. Together they had dominion. But her task was distinctly different. She had a different role in creation. She has to be the mother of all living. And so now Satan bypasses Adam, who is the authority figure in the garden, and he goes to the one person in all the world that holds sway over Adam's heart. 
How often doesn't that happen? Rather than going to the head, to the source, people with evil intent go behind their backs. Children who are intent on getting their way are very good at that too, aren't they? They know which parent to pick. And so is anybody who is very who has a very definite self-serving agenda. They exploit a person's vulnerability to realize their own ill-conceived goal. How else does he tempt us? Well, what he does is he gets us focused on a single issue. And in so doing, he elevates it to something to be really desired. Look at how he does that with Eve. He has her concentrate on a piece of fruit. You don't know what kind of fruit it was. Many people think it was an apple. There's no mention of an apple here. It may well have been a cluster of grapes because that's the one fruit most often mentioned in the Bible. But the food as such is not important. What is striking is here that of all the fruits that are available in the garden, he has her think about that one forbidden fruit. She doesn't need it. She doesn't lack anything. There is no reason for her to desire anything else more than she already has. Until Satan had her think about that one forbidden fruit, she had not really given it much of, much of a thought. But Satan plans the desire for that particular fruit in her heart. Out of the blue, he asks her a question about the forbidden tree in the garden. He does not begin by saying anything about how wonderful it is that God has given her such bounty that he has given her all these trees to enjoy. He doesn't come with anything positive. Of course not. He never does, except if it suits his own evil purposes. No, he focuses on the negative, on the forbidden tree. Isn't that how sin enters our lives? We turn our backs on all the good things and all the blessings that God has bestowed upon us and we throw it all away for a single sin in our lives. And especially happens when we don't lead thankful lives. For then we no longer see God's goodness. And then we only see what we don't have. And once our focus is shifted, and we will do anything to get it, it becomes an obsession. That's how the first sin started. He has Eve focus on what she does not have. And she fell for his trick. But it's immediately clear already from the way that she answered. She answers him, saying that God indeed has said that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that really what God said? No, he said in Genesis 2 verse 16 that she and Adam may surely eat of every tree. 
Actually, it says, as other translations also have it, that they may freely eat of every tree in the garden. They have the freedom to do whatever they want. And God's creation and can eat of any tree except this one. Not in order to withhold anything from them, but to test them. And did God also say that they were not even allowed to touch it? No. Take a look back. 2.16. No. She makes that up in order to make God to be more restrictive than he really is. And in this way, she is setting herself up for what is coming. For now, Satan has her where he wants her. She has taken the bait and is now ready to swallow it, hook, line, and sinker. The temptation is in full swing. It's the second point. Again, watch him at work. First of all, he disguises his purposes. Of course, he does not whisper in her ear that he is here to tempt her. He doesn't come waving a red flag. No, he just wants to have a theological discussion with her. He wants to make sure that she understood God correctly. All he wants from her is some clarification. Do you really think that God meant what he said? Eve, did you interpret that correctly? Are you sure of your exegesis? Do you really think that he would deny you the pleasure of that one tree? That doesn't sound like God, does it? He's the God of love. And he wants you to enjoy his whole creation, doesn't he? Brothers and sisters, that's also how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Do you really think that God the Father wants you to go hungry? Of course not. Why don't you just command these stones to become loaves of bread? That's how Satan works with us today as well. Satan whispers in your ear, do you really think that it is such a big deal that you take something from your employer once in a while? After all, you deserve it, don't you? God doesn't want you to be lacking anything. You might go hungry. Go ahead. God will understand. And, well, what's wrong with a little sex outside of marriage? Does God really want to deny you that pleasure? It feels so good. Did God not give you that beautiful gift of sex to enjoy? It's not such a great sin either, is it, to click on that pretty girl in front of you on the computer screen or on your device, is it? Who cares? You're not really cheating on your wife when you do that. All you're doing is you're just looking. What's the big deal? You know what that leads to, don't you? You will want more. 
It's never enough. It leads to what we see in the world today. There are no longer any barriers. People think that they should be able to do whatever they want. There should be no restrictions. There should be no hang-ups. You're free. But what happens? In reality, you become enslaved to sin. Satan has you where he wants you. He has you focused on the sinful flesh and to satisfy your sinful desires. Listen to what God says in James 1, verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death. Satan knows all about that too. At least he claims to. It's another way in which he tempts us. He attacks God's word. I'm sure he's very subtle and nuanced about it. But listen to what he says to Eve. After Eve told him that God had said they would die if they ate from the, from the tree. Then he says to her, you will not surely die. In saying that, he is just saying a half-truth. That's how he twists God's word. Look at how he did that with Jesus. When he tells Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, he quotes from Psalm 91, verse 11, namely that God will command his angels concerning him and to guard him. But he leaves out a little phrase, in all your ways, he will guide you in all your ways. In other words, God only keeps his promises if you walk in God's ways. But not if you don't. And therefore Jesus says to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan is dishonest about what God says in his word. He's also dishonest with Eve about what God says about death. How? Well, we all know what physical death is. Everybody does. You die when your heart is no longer beating and your total brain is no longer functioning and you're breathing no longer. In that sense, Satan was right. When Adam and Eve took a bite from the fruit, they didn't just drop dead. But what does the Bible say about death? On a much deeper level, death is being abandoned by God. According to the Bible, you experience true life only in God's presence. That is why it was so important for the Israelites to go to the temple, to the sanctuary. That is where they receive the forgiveness of sins. And that is where they are restored in a relationship to God. If you were kept from this temple, then you would be in mourning. That's the way it was, for example, for the lepers. Until they were cleansed of their leprosy, which might not happen until after they die a physical death, they were not allowed to come in God's 
presence in the temple. They could not enter God's sanctuary. They had to behave like mourners with their clothes torn and their hair disheveled and cry out, unclean, unclean. In that sense, Dave, Adam and Eve died when they ate of that forbidden tree. After that, they were no longer allowed to be in God's presence. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They could no longer have conversations with God and enjoy his bountiful provision and eat of the tree of life. And if you don't repent, and if I don't repent, and lead a life of repentance, then God will also abandon us forever. Of course, Satan doesn't say anything about that. He's not interested in the full truth. His only interest is in having you away from God, away from his love, and away from his care. In order to accomplish that, he not only attacks God's word, but he also attacks God's character. He intimates that God has ulterior motives. He says, God does not want you to be like him. And for that reason alone does he not want you to eat from that tree. But Eve, that's not really what's going on. Actually, what he wants is to keep everything for himself. He does not want to share his knowledge and his power. God wants to keep you down. He wants to forbid you the excitement that life offers in its fullness. He does not want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. For once you know all that, then you will experience or enjoy experiences beyond your wildest dreams. God has an ulterior motive, a hidden agenda, and it's an evil one. Brothers and sisters, once the well is poisoned, all the water is polluted. It's one of the wicked tricks of the devil. He uses that same trick all the time, also today, Shrewd politicians are very good at it. If they can't defeat their political opponents' ideas and successes, then they will attack their character. Suppose somebody had done that with Ruth and Naomi. Someone whispers in Ruth's ears that Naomi is about to exploit her, that she wants her to come back with her for Moab, to Bethlehem for her own selfish purposes. They whisper in Ruth's ear, Naomi, all she wants is to get her property back. And she wants to use you for that purpose. She's a manipulator. And she only has her own interest at heart. Don't fall for it. Can you imagine how hard it would have been for Ruth to do the right thing? How that would have planted doubt in her heart. That's how the devil works. Satan speaks to us in the same way. 
because of sin and our sinful condition, we carry our doubts and suspicions with us. When something painful happens in our lives, we ask why. But it is like a dagger pointed at the heart of God. Oh, Lord God, how can you let this happen? Don't you love me? Why me and why not someone else? And once you go down that road and follow it to its end, and then you also will doubt God's goodness, ultimately you begin to, care, you begin to question his character. The next thing happens is that you will doubt God's word. If you do not believe that God is there for you always and that he doesn't care about you, then once you believe that, the work of the tempter is complete. You have placed yourself out of God, outside of God and his kingdom. Of course, Satan wants to keep that eventuality hidden from you. He never tells you the truth. He is the father of lies. He keeps you in the dark about the consequences of disobedience against God. But if there is anybody that would know about the consequence of disobedience, it is Satan, isn't it? For he was thrown out of heaven because of his disobedience. His fate is sealed. It says in Revelation 20 verse 10, he will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the devil wants you and me to share his fate. Be watchful. And so how do we protect ourselves? How do we respond? Third point. Well, Jesus used the power of the word of God. Quotes the Bible. What's he say? He says, it is written. Very simple, yet quite profound. If you want to protect yourself from evil, then you go to God's word, all of it. Don't take it out of context as the devil does. Be faithful to the spirit of God. It takes knowledge, indeed. But don't think that when the Bible speaks about knowledge, that that exclusively means being able to quote scriptures frontwards and backwards. No, when the Bible speaks about knowledge, it speaks about intimate knowledge of God and his ways. The kind of knowledge that you have between a husband and wife who have had a happy marriage for decades. You know each other through and through. And so knowledge means that you know how to live close to him. Every day you call upon him. You heed his voice. You think about what he wants from you. And you want to please him, not yourself. To know him means to trust him. To know him means to depend on everything. 
It means to trust his character. It means to trust his goodness. It means to be sure, absolutely sure of his love for you. When God created Adam and Eve, he made a covenant with them. He made promises. He gave man and woman the highest place in all of creation. He gave that to you and to me as well. He gave them a place of honor. And he gave them the ability to be in a relationship with him and with each other. The fall into sin ultimately did not change that. He still loves you and me. Even though you may fall into sin, even though you may fall into some horrible sin, and even if you live in it for a while, he still loves you as long as you go back to him. As long as you humble yourself before him. As long as you acknowledge that he is the God of love and that he does not want to deny you any good thing. He wants you to be near him, to live close to him. And for that reason, for that reason you have to listen to him and not the devil. James says in chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yet how often do we not fall for the tricks of Satan? Every day, in one way or the other, he has us do something which goes against God's word. That's what we're like. And that's why you need to ask for the forgiveness of sins every day. We need God to restore us and to renew us. And that is an ongoing activity, brothers and sisters. We need God's help in order to survive. Listen to what God says in Hebrews 2, verse 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Go to Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ paid quite a price for God the Father to still love us. He was obedient even in the most horrible circumstances. He obeyed his Father in heaven during the most difficult and trying times. He was obedient to the bitter end. He never gave up. You may not do that either. If there is some sin that has you in its grip, run for help to Jesus. Repent. Brothers and sisters, we're all prone to fall into some of the most horrible sins. As I said when I quoted from 1 Corinthians at the start of my sermon, there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. And so let's be humble before God and each other. 
It's also what we confess in Lord's Day 52, namely that we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot even stand for a moment. The devil, our sworn enemy, does not cease to attack us. But we're Christians. We belong to Jesus Christ who won the victory for us over sin and the devil. He withstood the temptations. And if we belong to him, we can too. Satan cannot claim you. As long as you go to him time and again for forgiveness, for renewal, for the gift of life, then he will grant it to you. Eternal life even. How blessed we are that we can overcome sin and the devil in our lives through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.